1: to get started visit plushcare.com slash weight loss that's plushcare.com slash weight loss
2: hello folks David here we have a new tennis podcast for you but it does not include coverage of the news that has just broken moments ago of Wimbledon and the British grass court tournaments in the uk permitting Russian and Belarusian players to compete in their events in 2023 unlike last year as is so often the case. We recorded the show and then this news dropped. So we haven't been able to include it. Um, But I did want to put a a covering note on this show to say that we will come back to that news in the next show following the Miami tournament. But I wanted to, to give you what we understand at the moment ahead of this show because it is so significant. And if you consider... A year ago, it was nearly a year ago, that Wimbledon put out a statement saying that given the profile of the championships in the United Kingdom and around the world, it's our responsibility to play our part in the widespread efforts of government, industry, sporting and creative institutions to limit Russia's global influence through the strongest possible means, this in response to the invasion of Ukraine. Wimbledon went on to say at that time that in the circumstances of such unjustified and unprecedented military aggression. It would be unacceptable for the Russian regime to derive any benefits from the the involvement of Russian or Belarusian players with the championships. It's therefore our intention with deep regret to decline entries from Russian and Belarusian players to the championships in 2022. That's of course what ended up happening at the time. Ian Hewitt, the chairman of the All England Club, said that given the high profile environment of the championships, the importance of not allowing sport to be used to promote the Russian regime and our broader concerns for public and player, including family safety. We do not believe it is viable to proceed on any other basis at the championships. If circumstances change materially between now and June, he said back in April of 2022, we will consider and respond accordingly. Now, nothing changed materially in their view at that point to change their position. They did indeed ban Russian and Belarusian players. Subsequently, the ATP and WTA tours removed ranking points from Wimbledon. They issued heavy fines to the LTA in their tournaments, such as Queen's and Eastbourne, and threatened to remove them from the tours altogether. That's led to this point, where Wimbledon has today released a statement saying... Our current intention is to accept entries from Russian and Belarusian players, subject to them competing as neutral athletes and complying with appropriate conditions. These will prohibit expressions of support for Russia's invasion of Ukraine in various forms, and prohibit entry by players receiving funding from the Russian and/or Belarusian states, including sponsorship from companies operated or controlled by the states in relation to their participation in the championships. The conditions have been carefully developed through constructive dialogue with the UK government, the LTA and international stakeholder bodies in tennis and are aligned with the government's published guidance to sporting bodies in the UK. Three developments, Wimbledon say, taken together have informed their current position. Those are that the option of personal player declarations was not, in our view, viable last year they say that's changed uh, since then, Wimbledon says extensive engagement with the government and tennis stakeholder bodies has clarified and developed the form of declarations and produced workable measures for their implementation and enforcement. This approach is the full support of the government and the LTA, ATP, WCA and ITF. Wimbledon also go on to say that there was a strong and very disappointing reaction from governing bodies in tennis to the position taken by the All England Club and the LTA last year, with consequences which if continued, would be damaging to the interests of players, fans, the championships and British tennis. Tennis events outside the UK have experienced a year of competition with players from Russia and Belarus competing as neutral athletes. We also consider alignment between the Grand Slams to be increasingly important in the current tennis environment. So, they've changed their position uh, on another year. They are requiring... All Russian and Belarusian players to sign neutrality declarations and the LTA which governs British tennis and looks after all those grass court tournaments has said that there will be a zero tolerance approach to any flags, symbols or other actions which support Russia, Belarus or the war from anyone in our venues including players and spectators. So a complete about turn on position in terms of this ban on Russian and Belarusian players. Both Wimbledon and the RTA continue to say that they are content with what they did a year ago, that they think that they made the right decision, that they thought that was the right course of action, and they, they don't regret it. They are saying that they remain steadfast in their support of Ukraine and their condemning of the war. But They have changed their position on banning athletes from Russia and Belarus. So this is a significant change of approach the ATP and the WTA have since come out and said we are pleased that all players have an opportunity to compete at Wimbledon and LTA events this summer it's taken a collaborative effort across the sport to arrive at a workable solution which protects the fairness of the game this remains an extremely difficult situation and we would like to thank Wimbledon and the LTA for their efforts in reaching this outcome while reiterating our unequivocal condemnation of Russia's war on Ukraine but it it's made clear in the LTA s- statement that the, the threat to their own events of being removed from the calendar has been significant in this decision. They say we've consistently opposed the sanctions put on us and remain deeply disappointed by the penalties imposed by the Tours. The effect on British tennis of the LTA being expelled from the Tours would be very damaging and far-reaching for the game in our country. I don't think Wimbledon and the RTA were expecting quite such a ferocious reaction from the tours in terms of removing ranking points from Wimbledon and also threatening the very existence of those British tennis tournaments on the tour. Uh, But that's what happened. They had a significant fine and uh, they've found a way, whether you agree with it or not, they found a way uh, through these neutrality declarations and one or two other elements to allow Russian and Belarusian players back in, and uh, and that's what they've decided to do. Look, we'll we'll react as I said to this news in our next tennis podcast after the Miami finals. But for now, on with the rest of this show.
0: Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli.
2: I'm Mats Vilander. This is Mary Carillo. This is
0: Pam Shriver. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to the tennis podcast. <laughs>
2: Hello folks, welcome to our Miami Midway podcast. I say Midway, it's Friday, but all the rain and all the shenanigans that have gone on over the last week makes me slightly uncomfortable about where we are in this tournament, particularly because it's now more than a week and a half long. And I never quite know what I said on Monday about which player. So whether I make any sense, (laughs) any more than normal, we will soon find out. Uh, You'll be able to tell that this is not Catherine Whittaker presenting this podcast. This is David Law alongside virtually Matt Roberts, who is still very much under the influences of jet lag. Would that be fair to say, Matt?
3: That would be fair to say, yes, we've had a serious off air discussion about how to deal with my jet lag in the future, and I will be taking your advice because yeah, it's it's been it's been a tough week. <laughs> I'd actually done a really good job of not watching the tennis in the middle of the night and trying to sleep but but failing. And then last Did you night... just lie
2: awake? Do you just literally lie there looking at the ceiling?
3: Yeah, I mean I got up and had some food at one point. That's that's probably also a bad technique uh for for dealing with jet lag and and trying to sleep. I was just all out of sync terribly. And then last night made it even worse because I had two outstanding matches to watch and I did watch those for this podcast. So I don't okay. know, I don't know how many days behind I am, but uh yeah, tough scene so far.
2: OK, well, very, very interesting. And if anybody's got any uh, genius ideas for that, <laughs> <laughs> for the fu- for future reference, he's almost through this now. It's only taken him a week, uh, but um, yeah, he, he he, I'm sure will be very grateful. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, we do have loads of tennis to talk about in amongst the rain. Uh, and there has been a lot of that, as, a, as I mentioned. I mean, it has not been a Good scene in Miami, to be quite honest with you. Um, we've we know this because Catherine has been sending us uh, videos of herself in the rain in her raincoat, really trying to sort of rub it in. How, <laughs> how how we well, I suppose trying to get some sort of sympathy, but you know, when you're living in uh Stanley Hall, um, that's on fairly short <laughs> supply. I don't know what it's like where you are at the moment, Matt, but uh. <laughs>
3: Oh yeah. Anyway, it's, it's rainy here too, and uh, like I do expect rain in Miami, like South Florida. It's it's really humid, and it, sometimes it feels like it needs to rain there, doesn't it? But mm. but this has been excessive. Like it's been yeah. really irritating regularly disruptive. It's and been disruptive. Properly
2: disruptive. To the tournament they've they have struggled with it, I think. Um, we'll, we'll get onto to that over the course of this show. Uh, we've got loads of the matches to talk about. Catherine is going to be joining us via voice note, uh, she has recorded as voice note. We're going to hear that in a few different parts depending on where we're talking about. Um, in the show itself before we do that just a quick mention for our sponsors on location the premium hospitality and experience provider who sent us to indian wells who sponsored us during the australian open and who provided the most amazing prize to the miami open presented by Itau um, to one of our listeners who was a newsletter subscriber uh, called cassie and you may remember Cassie, if you'd read the newsletter, had never been to a tennis tournament before and she's been in touch. She said, hi, this is Cassie. I won the Miami Open tickets. I just want to thank all of you and tell you I had the best weekend in Miami. The seats were amazing and it was incredible to actually see some of my favourite players in person. So delighted that Cassie had a good time. Thanks to One Location and Steve Fergal's International Tennis Tours for providing that brilliant package for Cassie to enjoy. And, uh, yeah, we hope to be able to do similar things like that in the future and hopefully not limited just to US and UK uh, newsletter subscribers, which we were limited to this time, basically because we just didn't have the legal rights to extend it beyond that. Uh, but we always want to try and open them out when, whenever we possibly can, and we're just thrilled that somebody got to enjoy this brilliant prize somebody who's a listener to our show and that was cassie and she had a great time so delighted about that right matt i think it's high time we heard from the person who's actually in miami here's catherine
1: good evening david matt and assorted tennis podcast listeners um i'm coming to you from my hotel room in downtown miami Um, I am watching Carlos Alcaraz against Taylor Fritz on Tennis Channel. Having spent the day broadcasting the day session for Amazon Prime in the UK, uh, Alcaraz is currently a set and a break and uh, unsolicited prediction. I think he's going to win in straight sets uh, because he looks blooming awesome and... Taylor Fritz looks shell-shocked as so many do when they face him for the first time it it makes me wonder how on earth you prepare for playing Carlos Alcaraz there are no sort of Carlos Alcaraz imitators as kicking around the you know the hitting partner corridors <laughs> i just don't know how you prepare it's one thing telling yourself you're going to be facing 110 mile per hour forehands on a regular basis, hit at ridiculous angles from improbable positions. But I think it's quite another actually being on the receiving end of it. And uh, yeah, just watching Taylor Fritz scrabble around behind the baseline, trying his heart out and just feeling like he's playing a different sport to Alcaraz. But look, Alcaraz's level could drop in this match or in any of his two potential remaining matches. Who knows? Uh, It would be Yannick Sinner in the next round, so second tournament consecutively that they would have met in the semi-finals. He has been darn good, Sinner. Um, Just a ruthless, efficient winning machine. I still struggle to see the result against Alcaraz if that match comes about being all that different to Indian Wells, but Who knows? Who knows? Conditions are different. Sinner loves it in Miami. Alcaraz loves it everywhere. (laughs) We will see. Uh, The other semi-final is Medvedev against Hashanov. Difficult on this because I've not... Full disclosure, I've not seen much of Hashanov um, because it rained so much yesterday. Uh, His match against Sorundolo got moved to grandstand today, which meant we didn't cover it. Um, and I've seen a bit of Medvedev, but with all due respect to Chris Eubanks, who I'm sure um, you will talk about on the podcast. And if you don't, what are you playing at? Um, he, he's had one by Medvedev, and he's played a a couple of matches against you know considerably lower ranked opposition. I don't feel like I've got had a m- massive gauge of. Where Medvedev is at in his Miami game. I found the Eubanks match today really entertaining, um, and actually, Eubanks came out firing, was really hanging tough against Medvedev, who looked a bit sort of bamboozled, as if like, oh, this guy's got a quirky game that isn't really like anybody else I've faced before, and he does have a quirky game. Um, likes to be at the net. I'll I'll really remember some of his very athletic. Diving volleys. Um, got that single handed backhand, which is unreliable but fun and um, a real sort of whiplash forehand. Um, <clears throat> it was a good, it was a fun match. And but for the rain delay at 3 2 on serve in the opening set, could have been different. You know, Eubanks was right in it, but that rain delay came at exactly the wrong time. It was like the spell was broken and he, he got immediately broken. Uh, upon the resumption and um, while it remained a fun match, it did from that point on feel as if Medvedev was in firm control. So not going to make any predictions for Medvedev-Hashinov other than that um, a stat that I read out on Amazon today was that this is Hashinov's first time into a Masters semi-final in four years. He's made several Grand Slam. Sorry, semi-final. Did I say semi-final? Who knows? I meant semi-final. Um, in four years, he's made several slam semi-finals in that time, but his first at this level in four years. Um, So he is in my inexplicable tennis player category. Don't understand him at all. But there we go.
2: He's very much in uh, Matt Roberts's inexplicable tennis player category as well, because it's because of Karen Hatchinov, of course, that Matt Roberts is here, um, because of his amazing takes in 2018, late on in 2018, in which um, Matt heralded him as the uh, the Carlos Alcaraz of the future, more or less, <laughs> before he knew who Carlos Alcaraz was. And uh, yeah, and we enjoyed those takes so much. Let me stop you
3: right there, David. I knew who Carlos Alcaraz <laughs> was in 2017. Thank you very much.
2: Oh, oh okay, fine. <laughs> okay. Um, no, that 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 was after Hachinov had won Paris. So is, is is that what we're talking about here, Matt? In terms of the last time that this guy was at this sort of stage of a Masters? I mean, I realize I'm putting you massively on the spot there, but that just just a sort of bit of basic mental arithmetic. Catherine's talking about four years. That's pretty much what we're, what we're saying, isn't it?
3: I believe he also reached the semifinals in Canada 2019. I'm turning into a Karen Hatchinoff expert. So I think, we're, I think we're talking about since then. Uh, and okay. this was also the first time he'd got a top 10 win since then. You know, he'd lost like 20-something matches in a row against top 10 players. And finally, he beat Tsitsipas uh, the other day and look who is karen Hatchinov, what is karen Hatchinov, the tennis player has has definitely been something that that we've all grappled with i think over the over the last few years it does seem like now he is showing some real consistency at big events on hard courts he still he still doesn't come come into my mind as someone who i think is going to win these big events but U.S. Open semifinal, Australian Open semifinal, Miami semifinal—in in the space of six months, you know—he's he quietly goes through the draw and then maybe loses to a to a better player, and I, that is probably what I think will end up happening here. I, I would expect Medvedev to have his number, or if not, certainly Sinner or or Alcaraz. But yeah, Hachov is is becoming really reliable, I suppose.
2: Mm. yeah I, he seems to be maximizing mm. his whatever whatever potential he has and I think it look uh, I think he, he when he first came along he was he clearly had potential and he ended up looking I think maybe as though he got more potential than I initially mm. expected when he won that Paris tournament and, he, and a couple of other results I just thought his forehand looked a bit uncomfortable even though it was very hard hit and I thought it would break down more a bit like with Francis Tiafo, I often look at that sort of almost claw-like take back from them and just think are you going to middle the ball with that um and they do you know so it clearly there's there's more to technique than than i maybe certainly than i understand and and i think that we see that with medvedev as well on his forehand side it's all flailing arms and yet he still seems to middle the ball and put it with within two inches of a length every time of the baseline um but i think that Hatchinov went through a few years of then just not being a factor at all and in the last eight to ten months he seems to have just knuckled down and he's getting the very best out of himself and I think that there is a limit to that potential I don't think he's got much more left gears-wise to go really um, but it's mightily impressive what he is achieving so... I, I share your view. I, I saw Medvedev last night against the aforementioned Christopher Eubanks, who Catherine questioned whether we would be losing our faculties if we didn't talk about him. Well, he is on the agenda, Catherine. <laughs> and then we did see him. But, but he is an interesting talking point, Matt, because this is a guy, if you've not seen much of him before, he's American, he's 26 years of age, he's six foot seven. He looks a heck of a sort of physical specimen out on the court he looks sort of you know you you, you by the height alone and his gangly nature you might think basketball player when you saw him Um, and I think you also if you're me you you look at him and you think well where have you been why are you not already known to us in week-to-week tour events and masters 1000 events and grand slams he has been around for many years we have known about him we've had no reason to talk about him is the point because he's been scrabbling around in the challenges, hasn't he, for, for years, trying to to reach this point? And he's two or three days ago. He won a match that put him into the world's top hundred guaranteed on Monday for the very first time in his career and he broke down on court. It was a it was a wonderful moment. Um the next round he beat Adrian Manorino and he did an interview with Mike Cation, the uh the US broadcaster who's been commentating and broadcasting from the Challenger events for many, many years. So he's really been closely aligned with his progress and, and story and it it was quite a quite a, a moving moment to see them talking to one another you know Um, but here he is now Matt he's qualified and he's made these inroads and this is a life changer for Christopher Eubanks I would have thought career changer at the very least
3: yeah definitely and I thought he articulated just how much it meant to get into the top 100 so well you know there was there was first of all his reaction on the court which was so genuine he was so caught up in the moment and with the emotion of it all that he actually uh, ended up shaking the umpire's hand twice because (laughs) because he shook his hand as he normally would after the match and then went off to sort of celebrate with his team and then as he was sort of walking back to the seat he thought oh shit i forgot to shake the umpire's hand i'll i'll do it again and the umpire was like oh you already did that but thank you very much <laughs> and he was just he was just so caught up in it he just couldn't couldn't believe it and then in his words afterwards he just spoke about how you know if you're a if you're a tennis player like him top 100 is such a marker you know it's he, he sort of described it as feeling like you've made it really because it brings an element of financial security that you've not had before. You're getting into grand slam main draws and it's just a goal that he's always had. And, you know, to finally be able to do that was, was awesome. Um, he's, he's someone that I've always known as being really popular among the other players. Like it always feels like he's good company and the the other Americans sort of like hanging out with him. Um, He's also a great commentator. I've I've heard him on on tennis channel and I th- I think he's actually been commentating during this event. Certainly he was at the start. While while he was still in the tournament he was doing some commentary and sort of juggling those two things. And yeah, I mean he's it I suppose it's a good story about how how small the margins can be in tennis. I mean he he won a deciding set tiebreak in qualifying. To get into the draw, and then has won four tiebreaks in the main draw to keep that run going. You know, he's just he's just played really well when it mattered, and he does have a fun game. It was a good matchup with with Medvedev, contrast of styles, and I think it's probably the sort of game that will cause players problems because they just don't see it that often. A, a slice backhand, loves coming forward to the net, big forehand, big serve. Um, yeah, he's got he's got a lot of tools and it's been really fun to sort of see him work them out. And yeah, he's been he's been one of the best best stories of this tournament. The the ATP media notes described him as a sensation, which I'm afraid we do have to uh, point out is incorrect usage. Because sen- <laughs> sensations can only be Australian, we all know that. No disrespect, Chris, but you are um, unfortunately not a sensation. We're still we're still working on our word for the American player, aren't we? I think we've got Musketeer at uh, Roland Garros, plucky Brit at Wimbledon, and we're still we're still trying to work out what a what a Christopher Eubanks style American player is. But I'm afraid it can't be a sensation.
2: Yeah, so if you want to make any suggestions, folks, you, you're welcome to do so. And if you, if you want to know the origins of sense, Australian sensations and any other f- phrase or reference point that you hear on this show, uh, we will link to Tennis Podcast Terminology in our show notes, <laughs> which is a page on our website that we are growing by the day uh, with lots and lots of different references. Well, one thing, Matt, that I you've just described Christopher Eubanks' game. And I've said that he's been down in the challenges for years. And I still don't think that gives an answer properly as to why. Why has he not made it to this point? I mean, is is, is there anything that you can see or have read or have heard about his game or his mental approach or whatever it might be that has stopped him to this point?
3: Tough question. Uh, no, I suppose the only thing is that it's not a conventional game, is it, these days? So it it sort of makes me think that he will cause players problems, as I said, if he can get in front of them. But it's a grind down on you It's know, hard
2: work, it, isn't it? It is. Uh, that that's that's the main thing. And look I mean, I think he I think he is erratic. He looks like an erratic player. Exactly. I, I enjoyed watching him. And against Medvedev he sort of had an opportunity to show what he'd got. A bit like we were talking about, it's a different level entirely, but we were talking about how Medvedev gave Alcaraz this perfect length ball, this consistent pace to do what he wanted with and show how good he is. And with Eubanks, he got chance to go through his whole playbook. Some of them hit, some of them missed. The crowd loved it. He lost in straight sets, 7-5 in the second, put up a great showing. But, you know, as you said, a grind is is the word for challenges i don't I don't know whether we properly get across on this show how hard it is to make it, how hard because the Challenger circuit comes with so few points, so you might get a couple of what you regard as really good wins. You just don't get rewarded for them particularly. you don't get many points that send you shooting up the rankings if you get into qualifying for a grand slam you might win two great matches they might be the two best match wins of your life you might be on the cusp of, of a third and then you lose and you don't make the main draw and you don't get that massive ranking boost so you know you've got to be you've got to be able to find a way to repeat this stuff and keep on winning and uh, and what he's done here is he's qualified, he's got through the, the qualifying rounds and he's won several rounds in the main draw at a level that you just get so many points for. They put him inside the top 100. That gets him entrance into other big tournaments, other 1,000s, other Grand Slams. And then he only needs to win a couple of matches at each one of them and he maintains his ranking. This is this is kind of the the conundrum that these players face when they're trying to break in. And, and I, I think that whilst... His agents have done right by him by getting him wild cards and all those sort of things over the years. It's really hard to get a wild card into a tournament at this level, hit the ground running and win matches. Mm. Whereas he's gone into qualifying this time and he had two previous wild cards for Miami, he didn't get anywhere with them. Okay, he was a lot younger. This time he's gone through qualifying, he's nearly lost, but he's managed to find a way through, gets into the first round of the main draw. And he's got matches already under his belt. So he's got a benefit to having gone through it the hard way. And I think often players do benefit more from qualifying than they do wildcards. cards. But there is no magic formula. There's no secret other than keep trying and persevering. And he's a model of that.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, as you said, I just think he does have the sort of game where it's going to have some real highs. And it's great for him that it's all come together in this big event like this where he gets a big ranking push, etc. And, um, you know, it's not like he came into this event with any form. I mean, he lost to Feliciano Lopez in in, in Acapulco a few weeks ago, who, you know, is sort of barely a player these days. I mean, obviously has a lot of quality, uh, but, you know, I think he'd lost in the first round of a, of a challenger just before that as well. You know, it wasn't like he was knocking on the door to do this and yet it's all just absolutely broken for him this week and it's it's amazing that tennis can can do that and um yeah he's 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 a reminder that we get every now and again of of the quality that does exist you know below the top 100 line and how many good players there are and on any given day or week it, it might be their moment and he's he's seized his opportunity and it's it's just just great to see
2: yeah well I can I can tell you that uh Catherine was right it did end up straight sets as a win for Carlos Alcaraz over Taylor Fritz we watched the end of that match in fact I think I went to sleep just around about the time Catherine was recording that voice note because I saw him go up a set and a break and then I, I just passed out <laughs> and, uh, uh, I caught up with it in the morning and it ended up being six four six two and actually I mean I think first of all just in the confines of that match it was it was very much about the way the two sets started because immediately Alcaraz broke the Fritz serve and and that was the whole set that was the whole first set because the rest of it was really close I think that they won virtually the same number of points I thought Taylor Fritz was excellent for the for the majority of that first set and but he was already too loved down before he could properly get used to it all and by the time he did he just couldn't break and then the second set Again, he just immediately got broken, and uh, so I think I haven't read his transcripts, but I I would imagine Fritz would be a bit disappointed with how he started those sets because everything result revolves around that serve of his. Um, and with Alcaraz, you don't get a break really. That's the that's the thing that's emerging these days.
3: Well, that's pretty much what Fritz said. He had some uh, comments, sort of comparing Alcaraz to the big three as I'm sure, you know, is, is going to keep happening. Alcaraz is going to be compared to those players. And Fritz, I think, has only played Djokovic, Nadal and Federer when they've been in their 30s, I think. He certainly, you know, hasn't, hasn't come up against absolute prime, any of those players. But he said that his experience was that against Alcaraz, he had less room to breathe than he does against, you know, the big three and I think that's probably referring to the start of each set that you said Alcaraz just jumped on him straight away and it was really hard for Fritz to to keep up with his rhythm I suppose and I feel like Alcaraz matches are increasingly falling into a couple of categories he can either make an opponent just look bad and impotent and like they don't have any any options kind of like Medvedev in in Indian Wells he just he just has so much more to offer and it's and it's not close or what what an opponent can actually do is really drag themselves up and play brilliantly and look fantastic and just try and live with him and we've seen Sinner do that I think and I felt like Fritz played really really well last night and some of the best tennis I've seen from him and yet whenever whenever he came close to Maybe getting the set back on level terms. Alcaraz just conjured up something incredible. It was a it was a half half volley, wasn't it, to save save one of the break points. And Fritz just had this look on his face. And Catherine said it in her voice note: shell shocked. He he looked like someone who who thought he was playing quite well and getting c- kind of quite easily beaten. And that must be a really uncomfortable place for a you know, American number one top 10 player to be in. And that's just, that's what Alcaraz can do. It's, it's just not normal. It's it's getting, it's getting pretty ridiculous to be honest.
2: Mm. Yeah, no, it is. Um, uh, I, I watch him increasingly. And, and as you say, the the comparisons, to the big three are inevitable. I think partially because stylistically he's got a bit of all of them in him. He's, and he kind of produced the greatest hits last night. He he comes out into the court and he's he's doing those sort of, those jumps with the knees to the <laughs> chin at the start before they even get going. Then he's sprinting back to the baseline, which is all Nadal. He's, he's coming in and he's carving volleys away with the sort of footwork that makes you think of a Federer because he's got that slight balletic movement about him as explosive as he is he's still graceful the way he can move and you barely hear the footsteps and then he produced a backhand winner down the line in true Djokovic fashion with the legs splayed and and on the back foot and he still hits a clean winner despite the, the, the ferocity of the shot coming in his direction so inevitably those are all very exciting comparison points and you end up getting commentators and I'm sure I would do the same saying things like oh he's got this from Nadal and he's got this from Federer and he's got this from Djokovic you know he, that's how good he is well look th- that doesn't mean he's all three of them wrapped into one he's got characteristics and features of them of them all um and, and he's very much his own man and he's he's going to be less of a player than they are in other ways but what's really struck me is is his approach feels Nadal like now there is not a moment that he gives you a let up there's not a moment that he seems to have a let down now and, i mean and we need a, a larger data sample over the course of a period of time to see how that uh shows itself but you know he's he wins matches comfortably when he can now there's not there's not the dramas there's not the fallaways there's not quite so many uh, flashy moments uh, for, for necessity anymore um but what he showed last night is the big match temperament of Nadal that's what I took from it Nadal gives everything all the time but when he's got a big match he comes out with a little bit of extra intensity and you saw it behind the scenes before this match started, him and Juan Carlos Ferrero together, Alcraz was jumping around on his toes, and he was snorting like a, a horse about to be let out of the gate. And he knew what he was up against. He knew the threat of Taylor Fritz. And that contributed to the break. Immediate, the immediate break, the level he played for those first two and a half games, was not normal. That was a, a level above everything we've seen from Alcaraz this tournament, because the the uh, the sort of reflexes were heightened. the The sharpness that he required was there because he was nervous. He's nervous. He's edgy because he knows there's a threat, and it makes him better. And that's what you get from Nadal in the big matches. It might not win them all, but he comes out with a, with a, a look that I am ready and. Oh dear! It's getting more and more exciting to watch this kid, and and now he places plays Sinner, and I just wonder what you think. I mean, Sinner's had a pretty fairly comfortable route through to this. He looks totally professional. He looks at the best shape and state of his career. What do you think? Do you can you see an upset? Yes, I suppose I can. Like it's not, it's not
3: inconceivable to me that Yannick Sinner wins, and certainly, in the absence of Djokovic, Alcaraz, Sinner, Alcaraz feels like the match I I want to see at the moment. I love some quotes that Sinner gave the other day about how he didn't think he, you know, maybe quite played his best at Indian Wells against Alcaraz, and he was desperate for another shot, and that's you know, that's exactly what you want to hear. I certainly think he didn't serve very well in that match at Indian Wells against Alcaraz and he'll be looking to do do that a lot better. And he's been awesome in Miami. He likes the conditions. He's been a finalist there before. Um, but I'm going with Alcaraz as, you know, I just, Catherine's brother put on our chat this morning, maybe people are not maybe realising the level that he's that he's playing at and during one of the many many rain delays this week uh, prime showed last year's final between alcaraz and, and rude and it did just make me realize how much better already alcaraz is and particularly at the start of the match you know he was really slow to get into that match against rude it took him took him a lot of time to get going and exactly as you describe he's he's starting matches so explosively now and just getting ahead of of the threats that he sees down the other end of the court. We saw him do it against Medvedev at Indian Wells, at um, against Fritz last night. Kind of the only one he didn't do it actually was against Sinner at Indian Wells. And that, that was a match where he did have to sort of find his best level. And I do think Sinner... I wouldn't say it is in Alcaraz's head because, you know, I think Alcaraz might even still be leading that head-to-head. Like, he's fine. But I think he knows that Sinner can can cause him more problems than other players and it does put Alcaraz a little bit on edge in in that matchup. I just back Alcaraz so much and I just expect him to to find a way through that one. But um I don't know how you feel. I think you had you had Sinner winning the tournament. That might be a points play. I understand that was very it much, is. Was very much yeah. my situation with Medvedev because, of course, Alcaraz is winning it, isn't he?
2: Well, I mean, you got Medvedev for the for this title, have you? And you had um, Kraschikova, I think, in the other yeah. in, in the women's draw, didn't you? And and, and look, it, it is it is something that you end up factoring in. I mean, the 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 thing is, our <coughs> newsletter predictions you know the the we use we use a multiplier that shows form uh, in terms of how many points you get and and Alcaraz is now so obviously the favorite for this title in the absence of Djokovic there aren't many, there aren't many points if you choose him to win and and Al and Sinner is still the man who we've seen beat him in in at Wimbledon and push him at the US Open to match point and all the rest of it uh, and I think he's getting better too he's just not getting as much better as this guy um I still think there's just something about Alcraz now. He has, he's moved to another level because he's added this professionalism and he's cruising to wins and then he's shown that big match sort of uh, demeanor against Fritz that I just think we're going to keep on seeing that now. Um, so it's going to be fascinating. We'll, we'll we'll look forward to that and we will be back again post-Miami final um, to cover the rest of the, the days that remain in this tournament.
0: United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at UH1.com. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
2: What about the women's draw? Let's hear again from Catherine about what she is seeing, hearing, feeling, thinking.
1: I watched Petra Kvitova uh, today beat Katerina Alexandrova in uh, in three sets and then come over and speak to us on our prime video set, in which is just us standing in the corner of the court. <clears throat> and she was a total delight, <laughs> um, as she has been throughout her whole career, Um, it occurred to me today that Petra Kvitova is a completely different tennis player when she's in a sort of third set battle. I find her not a very compelling watch when she's either winning straightforwardly or losing straightforwardly. Anything sort of straight sets with Petra Kvitova, um, I don't find very enticing, particularly with Alexandra, because just extremely similar game styles, you know, not a lot of rallies. Um, it just all felt quite uh, predictable, I suppose, that match. But as soon as she got into a third set, she just becomes this scrappy, intense, and rescue-style dogfighter, Petra kavita And I love to see it. Um, she's played 13 Miami Opens, and this is her first time in a semi-final. And this, the exact same is the case for her semi-final opponent, Sarana Castella, 13 Miami Opens, first semi-final and her first semi-final at this level anywhere for a decade um, since Toronto in 2013. So those are two really lovely stories. I think to it's never too late to try again style stories, um, which are very uplifting. Castella, um, a completely transformed player under coach Thomas Johansson. She says he's particularly increased her tennis IQ and that felt very evident in her win over over Sabalenka yesterday. She was so aggressive, but in a smart way on the Sabalenka second serve. I do think Sabalenka looked a bit leggy in that match, but nonetheless, I mean, to see Sabalenka be out-aggressioned by by relatively little Sarana Castea was was quite something actually. Um the other semi-final is Rabatkiner against Pagula, which as I come to you has not yet happened. So why humiliate myself with making a prediction for that? Other than to say Pagula leads the head to head, 2-0. And both those matches happened in the last 12 months and one of them happened here last year. So That does make it interesting for me. If Pegida has lost sort of love and two at the point of you recording this, please feel free to edit this section out. I would be absolutely fine with that.
2: Well, no, we're not going to edit it out. We're just going to, you know, leave it there and tell you that actually Elena Rebecca did win, but it was quite close, Catherine. So I think we can let you off the hook there. Seven six six four over uh, Jessica Bagula. I have to say, Matt, I was out for the count by this time. <laughs> but uh, This is where my jet she, uh, lag comes in handy. Oh, oh, good. <laughs> tell us. <laughs> tell us about it.
3: Well, I, I found it really compelling um, because... Yeah, Pagula came in with a with a head to head lead, and it was immediately quite obvious how she can cause Rebekina problems. You know, we talk about tennis as matchups all the time, and I was thinking about Pagula, Sviantek, and Rebekina during this match, and how Sviantek just has Pagula's number, and yet Rebekina seems to have Sviantek's number, and there's just something about the way that Rabatkina can get on top of the Schwionte top spin and dominate her. Well, she doesn't get that ball against Pagula. Pagula hits it flat, she hits it deep, she skids it through, and she was really rushing Rabekina and getting the first hit in and changing the direction really well. And I honestly thought Pagula was going to win that first set. She broke Rabekina three times. And to then not win the set after doing that was a real heartbreaker, I think. Um, there was a rain delay in, in the tie break and that threw her off. She didn't come out of that rain delay well, lost the set. There was another rain delay, of course. She regrouped and went up a break again at the start of the second set. But it was like, whenever she was a breakdown, Rebecca and I started playing her best tennis. And um, Pagula just couldn't quite keep the lead. And yeah, Rebecca ended up winning. And there's this there's this stat going around that from Opter Ace that she's the first woman to hit ten plus aces in five straight matches in the same event since Serena at Wimbledon in twenty sixteen. You know, we're we're talking about a a weapon that we just haven't seen on the WTA Tour for, you know, seven years or so and Rabatkiner now is on for the Sunshine Double. And, you know, in the in the same way we're absolutely gushing about Carlos Alcaraz, we should absolutely be doing the same about Elena Rabatkina, who, you know, also reached the Australian Open Final. She's been there at every single big event this season so far. She's won thirteen matches in a row and she's done it in in Miami I think without her best tennis you know we spoke the other the other day about her match against Belloso how she found her best tennis during that match but she she struggled a bit I think with the transfer of conditions over from Indian Wells to Miami she she had quite a kind quarterfinal draw against Trevisan and, and beat her easily and didn't have her best tennis against Pagula but did have it when she needed it and she, <laughs> She's so good. She is so, so good. And I think she's getting better as well. And there were moments where Pagula brought out some of those um, touch volleys that, you know, Rebecca can just suddenly produce. You don't expect it, but she works her way to the net and she's got these lovely soft hands as well. And yeah, she's, she's, she's complete. Uh, she's confident. And I, I struggle to see anyone but her winning this this tournament now.
2: Wow, that's a great um report on on a match I didn't get to see, but I think it again it it feels like she's fairly quietly gone about getting to this point. She has had to save I think she had to save match points against Paola Badosa. She's, you know, it's not been straightforward actually in the early rounds of this, and and we hear a lot about the struggles, the challenge of trying to transition from winning Indian Wells, where you have therefore a lot less time to get used to the conditions in Miami plus fatigue, all the rest of it, even a time difference. And, and you come in and you, you, you're trying to make your way through this draw as well. But she's just she's sort just a gathering pace, isn't she? Like a sort of steam train reaching top, top speed. Um, and now she'll face either Kvitova or Kastea, who, who therefore must be casualties of the weather in terms of being um, a day behind.
3: Yes, they were supposed to play... Well, Kvitova was supposed to play Alexandra a couple of days ago and <clears throat> that got postponed, which meant they had to then postpone the semi-final as well. Um, yeah, and just, just sort of one last note on, on Pagula and Rabatkina last night. It's probably showed the difference between them at the moment. Like they're both regularly reaching latter stages of tournaments. Rabatkina is beating the best players in the world regularly in the latter stages she's won her last five matches against top 3 players. Pagula is still finding that a bit tricky, you know, we know that she beat Jentek at the start of the season but it just felt like she was she, it was there. It felt like that match was there to be won a little bit for Pagula last night and she just couldn't quite. I I've loved watching her this tournament. She she had a really gritty win against Potapova where you know, it's just awesome to see that fight and that grit. She had to save two match points. Potapova served for it twice, and yet Pagula still came through. And it was then revealed that she's suddenly uh, been sponsored by Stella Artois, which everyone's pointing out. Heineken have just really missed the trick there, because of course it was it was Heineken. <laughs> That she was drinking after that U.S. Open loss last year, that sort of iconic press conference. It was just a Open Goal sponsorship, I think, waiting to be waiting to happen. And I don't know. So,
2: so are we are we are we saying that Pagula by drinking a Heineken alerted Stella Artois <laughs> to her? I hope so. I, that's what I hope happened. <laughs> and they
3: and they swooped in, and uh, yeah, she's now got a Stella sponsorship, which is which is fun. And yeah, it's just. That match felt like the sort of match. This is a sort of a laboured point, but the sort of match where she's going to need one of those again because it was there for the taking. I think last night, and yeah. she just couldn't quite bring it in those biggest moments. And Rebekin could, and Pagula's serve sort of deserted her when it mattered. Rebekin has got this amazing serve, so I still think it could happen for Pagula. She's playing. She's playing so well, but. As we've said, there's a group of players now who are regularly, you know, reaching these latter stages in if it's not Shviontek, it's Robatkina. If it's not Rabatkina, it's Sabalenka. There's there's a group forming and yeah, Pagula just sort of needs to try and find a way through them, but it's it's much easier mm. easier said than done.
2: Yeah, sure is. Uh, well, maybe she should have a word with Sarana Kastea because, as Catherine was saying, that that's an extraordinary result for her to beat Sabalenka, who'd earlier on beaten Baba Krishikov pretty easily. I really didn't see that coming. Although Sabalenka, I note, has pulled out of Charleston next week. She put a, a post out this morning saying she'd, she'd had some injury in the last few days. Who knows how serious that is? And who knows maybe whether she does also perhaps just need a bit of a rest. It's it's been a lot of tennis for her lately. A lot mentally that would be a lot as well. Um I think Castaya is is just a I just think she's a great story. I mean I remember that match that Catherine referenced from ten years ago because it was I think it was one of the first tournaments that BT Sport ever covered when when they had their rights and, and it was one of the one of the examples of on court coaching being very vivid and uh, Darren Cahill coming onto the court he, when he was, I think he was part of the Adidas uh, team of coaches at the time. She was one of their athletes. He came on as the on-court coach and, and he gave a real sort of pep talk on Mike in front of her about... The crowd and and this moment and this opportunity and you know who knows where it will come again and and all the rest of it and she just turned this match on its head and, and really seemed to respond to it and here she is 10 years on back then she was this bright young thing of of whom so much was expected and now she's a veteran who's again working with a with a coach it's a very sensible uh kind of i don't know we've had thomas johansson on this podcast before he's just he's somebody you believe in i think when he talks he's obviously been there and done it he's won a grand slam himself And i think she buys into really good coaching words of advice and she sort of grasps them takes them and and does something with them and and becomes better for it and and i love that i love the way she's maximizing her career at this latter stage in her 30s like this and i still i think it's a I think she could beat Kvitova. I think that that's not beyond her. I, I can't. I, I, I'm with you. I think Rebecca is going to take some stopping at uh, this event. So we'll see um, where we go with that. Uh, let's just get, uh, as a final thought from Catherine, a, a view on what the event is like generally, because she's just been in Indian Wells, obviously, with us, and then she's gone on to, to Miami. I mean, there's not too many of us in the media that get to do the sunshine double I've never done that sort of back to back like that I've worked both of them but I've never had that comparison point of going from one to the next certainly not with Taylor Swift in the middle uh, uh in Vegas with Matt Roberts <laughs> but anyway that's what that's what Catherine did so let's uh let's get her view on what what it's all been like
1: my impressions are mixed quite frankly um I think it the court i'm looking at the court now on the tv and i think it looks fantastic i love the colors um seeing alcaraz's electric pink shirt jump out against the the aquamarine of the court and that's really cool it's got a real you know big event feel to it you rock up you get off the freeway and the first or actually while you're still on the freeway the first thing you see is this Imposing, formidable Formula One tracks snaking, snaking around this enormous kind of Arthur Ashe Stadium like structure poking out on the horizon, um, and they're already they're already well on the way to. Oh my gosh, that drop shot from Alcaraz Blumenek, poor old Taylor Fritz. <laughs> um, they're already well on the way with building the stands for the uh, Formula One race that will be here uh, in a few weeks' time. Um, my personal preference I, is that US Open aside, I do like tournaments that feel like they consume the place that they're in, feel like they are the biggest thing happening in the location or destination that they're happening in. See, you know, uh, the tennis at the Australian Open or Indian Wells. And Obviously, there's a bit of recency bias there because I've just been to those to events with David and Matt and I've had a wonderful, wonderful time. Um, But I like it. I like feeling like I'm at the epicenter of those cities and the sporting world in that moment. And look, it doesn't feel that way with Miami. The Hard Rock Stadium is a little bit out of town and it is very obviously an NFL stadium. It's a stadium within a stadium. I think they do a fantastic job of creating that stadium within a stadium. It's it's really something to behold from that perspective. But there's no hiding the fact that that's what it is. Um, they do a cracking job with all the player facilities. They seem really well taken care of here. And the crowds are decent. The place feels busy and bustly around the grounds. But the stadium, even you know, with all the killed seats, is huge. And even when there are several thousand people in the main stadium, it can feel sparsely populated, which again is, is a bit of a shame. So look, I think it, it's not going to feature in my top events list personally. Um, but I do, you know, there there is lots to like about it. And I think it's a, a personal, personal preference kind of thing. Miami is a, an interesting city um I was having a chat with Matt Futterman of the New York Times about Miami as a city earlier on and I don't know, it's I, I have I have a lot of discomfort about being in Florida, being in this state that has um a lot of laws and policies that make me feel so deeply uncomfortable. And, you know, yes, that is true with the place I live as well these days. Um I know nowhere has clean hands and nowhere is the progressive idyll that I might want it to be, but things are particularly bad in Florida at the moment. And I, I do have this sort of background level of unease with that. And yet Miami itself feels like a a very metropolitan, diverse, integrated city. Um, and, you know, it has a big art scene um, that I was aware of, but Matt was telling me more about today. It does feel it feels extremely integrated and diverse and thriving and progressive and it's hard to believe that this city exists within this deeply troubled and unprogressive state um it's quite a hard thing to reconcile and certainly something that is on my mind while i'm trying to take everything in um so yeah that is my miami assessment for you i'm i'm enjoying it i'm trying to make the most of my last few days here i i i don't want to get all sappy but i do miss you both terribly i'd i'd gotten very used to having you both around um i'd gotten very used to you know going to see taylor swift in vegas and going on road trips with matt and being driven to work by david and watching tennis with you both and yeah Maybe that's the progressive idyll (laughs) that I was describing. Um, But yeah, I'll enjoy my last few days and I will look forward to coming home and being on the same time zone as you both and seeing friends and family and walking Billie Jean and being a bit colder than I am now because it is hot and humid in Miami and I know no one wants to hear me uh, complain about the weather. So I will end things
2: there yeah i don't have a reference point um the same as catherine does in terms of the tournament itself because i whenever i attended the tournament it was in key biscayne and uh i i think it was clearly in severe decline when i was going and it needed this move and now it's got that process of trying to establish itself as itself as an event whilst indian wells has just carried on building and becoming better and better and better um so you know it. it I think it is a very ex- interesting experience for Catherine to to be out there I, I I hope it's you know maybe one you'll have at some point in the future Matt just so that you can get that kind of on the ground cross reference and, and feel for it as well um I I think one thing that really has struck me over the last month is whenever both of these two tournaments have been called at one time or another over the past 30 years the fifth slam um the fact that neither one has roofs, a roof, is now more jarring than ever because all Grand Slam tournaments have a roof. Because if you don't have a roof, you can't have tennis if it rains, and these two tournaments have been interrupted by rain. Now, obviously, this one a lot more than Indian Wells, but even Indian Wells lost a, a, a portion of a significant portion of a day through rain, and it was really frustrating. And that that really strikes me now. don't don't, don't you think? Oh hugely
3: yeah and i think even more so with miami because as you said they have made a move recently and i sort of would have thought in a climate where it does rain moving to a site with a roof would have would have been sensible uh it's just it's just not really acceptable anymore is it to have just hours and hours without tennis because as you said the standard has been has been set by those grand slams and these Masters One Thousand events are becoming bigger and longer, and you know we're going to get Rome and Madrid in in a few weeks' time, which are also uh, stretched over what is it, ten, twelve days. And if you if, if you if you're getting whole swathes of the day without tennis because there's no roof, it's just it's just really really frustrating, uh, and it does impact the scheduling as well. And yeah, I don't know, I think. I think Miami feels pretty inferior to Indian Wells right at the moment. Um, It's it's been difficult, I guess, with the move. And then immediately there's been, you know, there was the pandemic. There There was no way for the sort of event to gather momentum. And one of the years they didn't even use the main stadium, did they? It's just I don't have a clear idea in my mind of what this new Miami is, I suppose. And that's. That's so much of what an event is, you know, it's it's all the memories that have that have gone before. And when you move location, that's always a danger that you do lose that. Um, But as Catherine said, it looks good on on TV. The court colors are nice, uh, but it does sound like on the ground. It's it's quite a uh, quite a different inferior experience to Indian Wells. Hmm.
2: Now, one player we haven't been talking about in this podcast is Stefano Sitsipas because, frankly, he didn't go very far in the event. He hasn't won many matches recently at all, but he has had some things to say, Matt. Could you give us a brief overview of what he has been saying to Tennis Channel?
3: Yeah, so sort of unsurprisingly, because Sitsipas was involved, it was all all rather confusing uh, because... I think everyone was wondering why Sitsipas was playing these two events, to be honest. You know, he was very upfront at the start of Indian Wells, that he wasn't fit. He wasn't expecting to go far because of this injury that he's got. Uh, and then, you know, people thought maybe he would pull out of Miami, rest up for the clay court season. But no, he's in the draw. He did better in Miami. He he, he got a pretty good win against Christian Gareen before he lost to uh, Karen Hakshanov. But... He gave an interview halfway through the tournament to Tennis Channel where he sort of explained his reason for playing. And he pointed to a rule on the ATP Tour that, according to him, states that if you don't play at a Masters 1000 event, there are certain penalties, such as they take away your best Masters 1000 performance of the last year and you can't add points to that. Which... You know, when he said it, everyone was a bit like, huh, is, is that right? Like, it didn't feel right, I suppose. It felt like maybe he was misrepresenting what the rule is. Um, and, you know, I think everyone sort of started doing some digging into that rule. And that is written into the ATP rulebook. However, there's a quite clear caveat to that, that there are ways to get around that perfectly legitimate ways. That is not a, re- a rule that is enforced generally because you can get out of it by citing an injury and, you know, going through the proper withdrawal process. And so it was either a bit of a insert Andy Murray, nobody knows the effing rules moment from Sitsapass, and he's he's genuinely really unclear on it and has felt like he's been forced into playing or... It feels like a bit of a bad faith take from him, to be honest. Making out like he's been forced to play and there would be no other options, which is which is simply not true. And it just sort of all all feeds into this sort of slightly weird picture around Sitsapas at the moment. And he doesn't have to be playing. He 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 could be resting up for the clay court season. And I don't know. I I, f- I found the whole thing a little bit confusing and. Um, we certainly reached out to ATP for some comment, didn't we? Just to try and sort of clear things up.
2: Yeah, yeah. I spoke to Simon Higson of the ATP and sent the quotes to him. And and he he came back and clarified a few things from the ATP's perspective to say that the reference that Sitsipas made to fines, there being a fine for a situation like this, he said, there are no withdrawal fines if a player withdraws ahead of the withdrawal deadline. Uh, he said there are no withdrawal fines if a player withdraws on site prior to the event due to injury. So he could have gone to Miami, pulled out, and he wouldn't have been fined. Um, he said the suspension provision in the ATP rulebook has been in place for many years and is intended to address any flagrant disregard for the commitment rules at Masters 1000 level, i.e. they want players to commit to these things. They make it mandatory. But he said there are loads of instances where players have legit had legit legitimate reasons for withdrawals like injuries um and you know they they will be let off basically they will not be uh they'll be asked to do some promotional activities and if they do that they that would they wouldn't even need to appeal a suspension penalty but i mean even if even if they do need to appeal it if they've got a legitimate reason they're not going to be docked his monte carlo titles worth of points for instance so either he doesn't know that or he's just sort of irritated by everything. I mean look I can understand him being irritated, he's, he's clearly not fully fit and and in my view even if even if that did cost him a thousand ranking points and a load of money he's a rich man and his best chance of gaining a lot of ranking points is to be fully fit and playing the biggest events on clay and winning them which he's quite capable of doing if he's not sort of slogging around the circuit half fit and and not winning matches so which which is what he's doing at the moment so i just feel as though he he he's just got this wrong and he and i think he needs to change his thinking on it personally um and i i hope he's fully fit really soon because i love watching him play um but i think he's he needs to buck his ideas up on this one personally Uh, Right. Well, that's about it for another tennis podcast. Um, Just as a final note, um, we have a Roland Garros ticket promotion from Steve Fergal's International Tennis Tours. There's only about a a week of this still to go if you want to take advantage of this. Tennis podcast listeners can get 15% off tickets and hospitality packages from Steve Fergal's International Tennis Tours. You just need to go to toursfortennis.com forward slash podcast. That's Tours, the number four, tennis.com forward slash podcast. Click the banner for the Roland Garros pr- pr- uh, promotion and enter the special discount code for p- Tennis Podcast listeners, which is 15LOVE. That's 1-5-L-O-V-E. And I get to read the disclaimer. <laughs> Let's have a go. So... 15 Love coupon code is only valid on purchases for eligible 2023 Roland Garros ticket packages on www.toursfortennis.com made between 9am Eastern Standard Time on Thursday, March 16th, 2023 through 11.59pm Eastern Time on Sunday, April 9th, 2023. As I said, a week. Uh, 15LOVE code is limited to one use per customer, not valid on previous purchases, and not usable with any other offer or discount. Your total savings will be revealed when you head to toursfortennis.com, add an eligible package to your cart, and enter 15LOVE at checkout. Not valid on hotel packages or other events offered by Steve Fergal's International Tennis Tours or any of its subsidiaries. For questions, please email info at toursfortennis.com. Well done,
3: David. You've, Thank you very much. You're pretty pleased with yourself, aren't you?
2: <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> I've rather enviously heard Catherine say all that the last uh, few weeks, and I thought, I want not have a go. So I've waited for her to be out of the picture, <laughs> and here I am. <laughs> um, not that I don't want you in the picture, Catherine. Oh, I'm getting myself into a right model here. Uh, come back soon, Catherine. Um, we will also say a big hello to our personal Presenter mascots. I've got Maisie, who I've been doing proud of late. Maisie, you're very welcome, and thank you for your inspiration. Uh, Catherine has got Xenia. She's been doing pretty well, too. Matt has been letting down Darwin, (laughs) who is probably rapidly regretting jumping ship from David a year ago. Um, But anyway, Darwin... All the best to you. Hope Matt does better for you in the future. (laughs) Um, Billie Jean the Dog is sponsored by Billie Jean King and Alana Kloss. And our top folks and executive producers are Jamie, Hannah and Drew. And they really are all top folks who help us keep this show on the road. As do all of you who listen to us week in, week out particularly those of you who are friends of the Tennis Podcast and subscribing to get our bonus content that we produce year round. Matt and I are currently working on a couple of editions of Tennis Relived that we will have for Friends of the Tennis Podcast later in April. I've been doing a couple of interviews. Matt's been on the Wimbledon Library. We've got Q&A shows that we're going to be uh, producing throughout the year where we where we answer only Friends of the Tennis Podcast's questions. Uh, we've got our post-Grand Slam special shows with voice notes galore. And really, Friends of the Tennis podcasts is how we keep this show on the road year-round and travel to all the Grand Slams. And, and we love doing it, but we're hugely grateful to all of you who sign up particularly at shout out level and intro level um, and we will have shout outs in the next episode they're not the same without Catherine so we're not even going to bother uh, we'll also have an, S- an episode map. roundabout season two presented by Nissan is live now and we're back to share
0: more stories from the road and the memories made along the way we're talking rest stops if we're stopping to get gas you will be timed misguided plans I grew up in the city so I have like you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness, <laughs> a lot of laughs. y'all weird. but you yeah, you you were different. and so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast
1: powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.
0: wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their
2: podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com Scott, uh, after the next one. But for now, Matt, I think it's high time we went on to lie down. Uh, I, I need a lie down. <laughs> yeah, my... <laughs>
3: my neighbour's just started some drilling so maybe not the best time for a lie oh. down
2: <laughs> okay well good time to stop the podcast though, <laughs> yes. so we'll go and watch the tennis instead and we'll speak to you very soon after the conclusion of the miami finals hope you have a good few days